The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you all out this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 30. That's where we'll be together. As you turn there, you may have noticed since being back, our services are a little different. Um, some of some of it's just because we we have to, just with the circumstances, things that are things that are going on. But some things have changed uh, as well, and there's a reason for that. Uh, we've been doing a podcast together as pastors that goes out weekly. We've been doing it on worship, talking about worship uh, within the church, and. As doing that together, it's brought some things to light just in our minds of how we do worship and how maybe we should tweak some things. Um, and so I just want to kind of reiterate that to you and to share with you, because I know you've noticed that. We, we've been doing some longer scripture readings together, actually reading through First Peter right now, and so we've done chapters one through three um, together. And I, I know that you can sit there and at first think, this is boring, what is going on? There's, there's nothing happening here. Well... We believe there is something happening there, is that the public reading of God's word is important for God's people. I would love to sit here and think that all of you read God's word every day, that you're diving in it every day. I just know that's not true. It, it, even for myself, I struggle at times uh, to get into God's word. And so one of the things is, well, then we'll read it to them. They're going to hear it. And they're going to know it without us even standing then and explaining it, letting the Holy Spirit just soak it into your, into your heart. And then same with our times of, of prayer, being specific on what we're praying for and why we're doing it and keeping that scriptural. Now, some might say that that's not needed or that's not necessary. And I, I want to share with you a, a study that came out just today. I, I read on it and I want to share why it's reaffirmed in my heart this is important. For us as a church to be centered on God and his word more than anything else. And I'm not saying the other things are bad and shouldn't be a part of our services. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if we want to get down to the central thing, the most important thing is to be centered on God's word and focused on God. And, and this is why. Okay. It says, according to some new research uh, from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, only 39% of Americans today view, view human life as sacred or as having unconditional intrinsic worth at all. Now, that shouldn't be shocking, I don't think, for us to read that that's happening in America. You know, when I, when I read that number, it's like, well, yeah, that's pretty obvious to me, that people don't see even human life being worth anything intrinsically just because they're human. But the problem comes in the, later in that paragraph it says groups that still hold this view include adults with a biblical worldview. 93% believe human life has an intrinsic value. That's good. But this is where, to me, it gets bad. Those attending an evangelical church, 60% think that. Born-again Christians, 60% believe that. Political conservatives, 57%. People 50 or older, 53%. Republicans, 53%. But then some religious groups had only a minority who viewed life as sacred, including those attending Pentecostal churches, 46%, mainline Protestant churches, 45%, or the Catholic church, 43%. Of all the church groups, evangelicals were the most likely with 60%. Now, I have a problem with that. 
Because what that's telling me is us being an evangelical church, which would say it's the highest percentage, is 60%. That means that 40% of people who listen to pastors who are preaching in an evangelical church, most likely claiming to stand on God's word and on his promises and believe that to be true, 40% of their congregation would say, I don't believe there's any worth to human life except for what that life then goes and does and makes of itself. Which is a foundational issue because if you know anything of God's word, you know that we are made in the image of God, which thus gives us worth. And so some may ask, why do we read all that scripture in service? Why, why spend so much time in prayer? Why have these different things? This is why. Because the solution to this problem within churches is to be centered on his word and his word only. Not just on your statement of faith, but in your actions that you do on Sundays or as a church as a whole. And so that's where some of this is coming from, of why you may see some changes in uh, our services a little bit. And also we're doing it for time reasons, some of that now as well why we don't have as much music at this point, but I'm sure that will change. Anyways, that's my little rant this morning, just so you know. I had to get that off my chest. Okay, Psalm 30 is where we're going to be. Let me give you a little background on Psalm 30 before we dive into it uh, together. Some would say that Psalm 30 was written by David after David had taken a census of Israel in which God was not pleased with David for that. Uh, you can find this in First Chronicles uh, chapter 21. In First Chronicles chapter 21 is where you would find uh, David calling a census to be done of Israel. And it's kind of interesting because it, I, I always asked, I've heard of this, I knew of this, but I would say, why was God so much against a census? What is wrong with that? Well, there's really not much reasoning given in Scripture except for verse 1 of First Chronicles 21, which says this, it says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. That is how we know that this is a sin, that it was sinful for David to do this because it was something that Satan was pushing for and David gave in to this. So what happened is because this was sinful, God actually gives David three options for how God will respond to this sin in David's life. First Chronicles 21, 11 through 12. It says, So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Now I want you to think about this for a second. You are the king of the land. You have sinned. You've caused sin. And God comes to you and says, all right, you got three, uh, three options here. Uh, you choose for me which one you, which one you want. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of your enemies coming and overtaking you. Or you can have three days of me handling you. What do you want, David? Now, I wouldn't want to be in that situation. I'd say, how about you choose? I don't want to have to choose this. 
and also the guilt that has to be on you at this moment because it's your sin. And it's going to affect the whole nation. It wasn't just, maybe David was waiting for like, what's the one that just affects me? It doesn't come. It's going to affect the whole nation. Why? Because David's their leader. David's their leader here. Well, David chooses option three, the three days of the Lord, uh, putting his vengeance on them. And so within three days, 70,000 fighting men of Israel die. That's what happens. So much for the census, right? Trying to figure out all these numbers and how mighty are we? God deals with that really quick. And so what happens is in the midst of that, David begins to pray and he prays and he's asking God to relent. And if you continue reading in 1 Chronicles 21, you'll see that David goes to uh, this place. There's a man there by the name of Ornan. He's actually threshing wheat and David purchases the land from him and builds an altar there to the Lord and prays to the Lord and seeks that the Lord would stop this vengeance. And the Lord does just that. Lord, in his great mercy, hears David's prayers, and it ends. It ends there. So as we approach Psalm 30, some commentators would say this is when David is writing this. Out of this comes Psalm 30. So follow along with me as we read Psalm 30 together. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up You have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now... In my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood? When I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, Be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To the end, that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. As we look at verses one through three, we see David praising God for God's faithfulness. And in these three verses, Five times David says, Lord, you have, and then he says something. Five times in these three verses, he points out how the Lord is doing things. He says, Lord, you have lifted me up. And you can picture the the imagery that's supposed to be there is like a bucket being drawn out of a well, or, or maybe your mind would go to Joseph when his brothers threw him in the pit. But eventually he would be lifted out of that pit and he was then sold uh, into slavery. But he was, he was lifted out. He was taken out of that hole from where he was going to die. But no, he was, he was saved from that. That's the, the picture that we have here that David is saying. is saying, Lord, you've lifted me up. I was in a pit that I couldn't get out of on my own. There was no way out. But God, you've taken me out of it. You've lifted me up. He says, Lord, let not my foes rejoice over me. 
I think this comes from what David said in Chronicles 21, which we read and we didn't get to it. But the reason David picked the three days is he said, I don't want my enemies to be able to rejoice that they've overtook me. And so, Lord, I want you to do your judgment on us, not not them, but you. That was the reason that he had picked the third choice there. So he's he's praising God here, saying my foes did not have a chance to rejoice over me. He says, Lord, you healed me. So maybe David had gotten sick. We don't know. Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. Again, that, that guilt and that shame that had to have weighed on David, watching as his nation was ravaged with death. Why? Because of his sin. Not because of their sin, because of his sin, because he let Satan entice him to count Israel and went through with it. So the guilt and the shame that must have been on him, but at this point, God is restoring to him his soul, he feels. Then lastly, he says, you have kept me alive. You have saved me. Nobody else but the Lord has done this. I mean, it's obvious that David had experienced great pain, that he had experienced great suffering in his life, but he also realized as he is penning this psalm, that it is God and God alone that has brought him out of this. One of the things I think as Christians that we forget about so quickly is how God has done this for us in our life. And I'm not even talking about salvation at this moment, but I'm talking about how God takes care of you. How at times in your life you've been sick and you've been healed. And maybe you go to your doctor and you tell your doctor, thank you for giving me the antibiotic. It worked great. And that is good. Those are good things that we have, but you have to understand those are good things from the Lord that we have. And it's God who heals. It is God who takes care of us. When you leave here and you go spend your money at Wendy's or wherever it is you're going to decide to to buy lunch, that is a blessing from the Lord that God has given you. It is God who provides for us. And I think a lot of times we, we take this for, for granted. And David is not taking any of this for granted at this moment because he had just come out of such a horrible situation in his life that he is being reminded once again of God's goodness to him, of how God has brought him out of this difficult time. And he can rejoice again at God's goodness to him. I think all of us who've been Christians for any time at all, if we really think about it, We've been in that situation and we can rejoice as well because we know God has brought us out of it. Now, I say that understanding this also. There are some of us, even now at this moment, you're still in it. You haven't haven't been brought out of it. And it would be foolish for me to stand here today and say, just keep going, God will bring you out of it, I promise. I don't know that to be the case. I don't know that to be true. I've done too many funerals for people with cancer who died of cancer. Good, faithful people, but they still died of cancer. Does that change the promises of God? Does that, does that change the goodness of God? Absolutely not. Because the truth of this matter is because of sin in this world, there is death. There's pain, there's suffering, and Christians are not void of that for a second. But what we do have is in the midst of those things, we have hope. Why? Because we know the love of our God. We know the love of our Father that even in death, it gives us victory as Christians because we will spend eternity with him with no more sin, with no more suffering, with no more pain. 
And so in verses one through three, David is reminded of God's great faithfulness. But then in verses four through five, it's kind of interesting because all of a sudden David asks us to join in. See, in verses one through three, we get a peek into the personal life of David, of his praise, of his worship of God. But it's so overflowing in David's life that he would then pen in verse four, sing praises to the Lord, you saints of his. David calls on the people of God to sing praises. And when when it says you saints of his, I've taught on this before. I don't know if you'll remember it. It came up a lot as we went through the book of Ruth together. But there's a word, the the kessed love of God. And that's what's used here. And it's, it's God's special love for his chosen people. It's separate from God's love for creation or anything like that. What we see here is is David is appealing to those who have experienced the great love of God for his people, those who have been adopted into his family, those who are now heirs of his. David says, those of you who know, who understand the great love of God, those who have been redeemed, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for the things that he has done in your life, for the things that he is doing in your life. And, he, and how does he say it? He says, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a song of joy, a song of exuberance, of, of gladness for what is happening and what is taking place and what has took place in your life. But then he appeals even farther. What does he say at the end of verse four? And give thanks at the remembrance of what? of his holy name. This is where all of us then must praise. And here's why. Because you might sit here and be saying, well, Pastor Tim, right now I have nothing to praise for. I'm in the midst of it, man. I I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this. I'm actually really struggling with my faith at this moment because of the things that I'm experiencing. And so for you to stand up there and to tell me to praise because of the good things that God has done for me, I just can't think of them at this moment. Well, that's fine. Because David took it a step further and he said, praise God then for his holiness. Don't praise God because of you. Praise God because of him, because of who he is, because of how holy he is. Now, I think the fact that God is holy is often overlooked or actually just really taken for granted by so many. But the fact that God is holy means that God is very separate from us. Because we are not holy. And so there is a big separation between God and man when it becomes, when it comes to holiness in our life. He is, he is perfectly pure in all of his purity. Now that's completely foreign to us because that has never been us. Anybody we've ever been around, they are not like that. They have faults, they have failures, but yet God does not have that. And so David says, sing to him because he is holy. And if you are part of his people, he has made you holy because he is holy. And so we can sing praises to him in his holiness. Knowing that I would struggle to talk about this very eloquently, I pulled a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who does better than me. And talking about verses four and five, he says, Sing unto the Lord, all you saints of his. David would not fill his choir 
with reprobates, but only with sanctified persons who could sing from their hearts. Now, I could stop there and go on for a long time. Do you know that I've been to conferences where I've been told as a pastor, you should hire choir members. Don't matter if they're Christians. Just hire them because then they're professionals and it's going to sound good. In fact, you should hire Sunday school teachers. Don't matter if they're Christians. Just hire teachers who are trained because they'll do the best at teaching it. Now, hopefully we see the problem with that. I hope you see the problem with that. Non-Christians can't praise and worship God the right way. They cannot teach us how to praise and worship God the right way. It doesn't come from their heart. And so what we're seeing again from this psalm is, you saints, praise him. Charles Spurgeon goes on. He says, he calls to you, you people of God, because ye are saints. And if sinners are wickedly silent, let your holiness constrain you to sing. You are his saints chosen, blood-bought, called and set apart for God, sanctified on purpose that you should offer the daily sacrifice of praise. Abound ye in this heavenly duty. Sing unto the Lord. It is a pleasing exercise. It is a profitable engagement. Do not need to be stirred up so often to so pleasant a service. And give thanks. Let your songs be grateful songs in which the Lord's mercy shall live again in joyful remembrance. The very remembrance of the past should tune our harps, even if present joys be lacking. At the remembrance of his holiness, holiness is an attribute which inspires the deepest awe and demands a reverent mind, but still give thanks at the remembrance of it. Holy, holy, holy is the song of seraphim and cherubim. Let us join and not dolefully, as though we trembled at the holiness of God, but cheerfully, as humbly rejoicing in it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there are times I've got to be drummed up to praise God. I do. I think, come on, Matt, give me some more. I need a little more. I need a little more energy. I need a little more passion or something. Because you got to, come on, Matt, it's your job to dwell and say, get inside of me and make me praise. That's your duty. Or, or when, I'm, when I'm reading God's word, God, I'm not feeling this. Give me more. I need to get to this point to where I feel like I should raise my hand. I need to get to this point to where I feel like I'm going to shout and sing like you're asking me to do, but I'm not there yet. Let's, let's make it up inside of me. Can I tell you, we need to repent of that. I need to repent of that because I, I often feel that. I, I oftentimes think that, but that should not be a part of me as a Christian to say to somebody else, you need to work inside of me so that I will praise. Oh, as chosen and redeemed by our great God, it should be welling up inside of me all the time. And when it's not, it's a sin issue in my life that's distracting that. It's a sin issue in my life that needs to be dealt with. And then I need to repent before God and say, God, work in my heart an attitude of repentance so that I will praise you again so that I'll see your goodness again. The great King David calls on us and he says, join in with me, saints, in praising God together. In verse five, it talks about God's great mercy and how because of his mercy, he is worthy of praise. Notice it says, it says God's anger is just for a moment, just for a moment. 
Uh, when, I, when I read this, I think about God's discipline in our life as, as his children and how we'll experience maybe these struggles that God is allowing us to go through to help us to grow. And it's not fun, but it's just for a moment. And it goes on to say, but his favor is for a lifetime. And so we have to compare that as Christians, as, as we walk according to God's word. And yes, at times we're going to experience this discipline in our life. We actually have to see that as a blessing because as we experience that discipline, we understand, yes, but this means his favor is on me. And his favor is on me, not just for a moment. No, it's, it's on me forever. The certainty of God's blessing in my life is, is forever. Why? Because I didn't choose him. He chose me. And it wasn't by accident. I didn't stumble into the wrong line and he say, oh, all right, since you're here, poof, grace on you. It didn't work out that way. From before time ever began, those who are children of God were known to be children of God. And it's forever. And so he isn't going to take that away. It's a certainty, a lifetime of favor that makes that momentary discipline worth it. But then David also compared, he said, weeping and suffering may endure for a night. When I say that, I have to think many of you understand that. Those nights that are forever long. Those nights that when you close your eyes and you think hours must have gone by and you open your eyes to realize it's been five minutes. It's been five minutes. And you toss and you turn and maybe you're anxious about something that's coming up and you're just dreading it and it's bearing down on you and it's very heavy and you think, I don't know if the morning is ever going to come. This night seems like forever. David reminds us the night is not forever. That the morning is coming. In fact, Jesus talked about this. John 16, verse 20 through 22. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, saying, I'm getting rid of all this sorrow. What Jesus is about to go do on the cross and in his resurrection to remove all this sorrow, saying, listen, even to the disciples, it's going to hurt for a moment. But listen, the morning is coming. The morning is coming. I don't think it's by accident that when referring to Jesus in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter would call Jesus the morning star. He is our morning. He is our light that we are looking forward to in those dark nights. He is the salvation that comes in the morning. And so as believers in Jesus, our joy is never ending. Therefore, our praise is never ending. As we get through verse, to verses 6 and 10, David talks about his pride, his fall, and then his prayer. Notice what happens in verses 6 through 7. It says, now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. 
So we have something going on here with David where he's noticing his prosperity. He talks about his mountain being strong and he gives credit to God in a sense to this, right? He says, Lord, your favor has been on me. And so we know that God established David, that God had blessed him, but it seems as if this prosperity had gotten to David's head a little bit. It seems as if David maybe has forgotten that one day he was just a little boy in the field with the sheep when God sent somebody to find him. He, he wasn't doing anything, but God found him. God anointed him. God made him who he needed to be. Now, I'm not saying David didn't have talents. I'm not saying David didn't have different abilities or different giftings. I'm, I'm sure he did. But it was God who had done this. Yet, David started to find his security in his earth, earthly wealth. He started to find his security in his mountain. What had happened as pride had sunk in. One of my favorite verses to share with people is Proverbs 16, 18. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I think it's something that needs to be on our mind very often. And that's what's happening here with David. His pride is going before him and very soon his fall will happen. And it doesn't take much for him to fall because at the end of verse seven, it says, you hid your face and I was troubled. Now I want you to notice what didn't happen here. David doesn't say, Lord, you struck me and I was troubled. It doesn't say, Lord, you took away my mountain and I became troubled. All it says, all David says is, Lord, you hid your face from me and I was troubled. This alone ruins David. With all the money, with all the women he had around him, with all the power, with the armies that he had at his disposal, the moment that God hides his face from David, David realizes in that moment how insignificant he is how insignificant all these things of the world are if it's apart from God and his will. And so David starts to struggle. And what we see David do is David then turns to prayer. In verse eight, he says, I cried out to the Lord. I made my supplication to him. And then in verse nine, what you'll see is you'll see a little uh, logical fighting maybe that David is trying to do with God here. And there's a problem with it. Right? He says, God, if I die, who's going to praise you? If you kill me off, who's going to be the one to worship you? Is the dust going to do that? Now, I think Jesus speaks about that in the New Testament, does he not? If you don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. The rocks will do it. So in fact, God probably could have looked at David and said, yeah, the dust will actually. I don't need you. They'll do just a fine job. And so David uses some logic there in, in verse 9, which kind of falls flat. But then in verse 10, he says, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. So after trying to reason with God, David really gets to the meat of his prayer. And he says, Lord, please have mercy on me. He appeals again to God's hesed love that we talked about. A love of mercy with his covenant people. God is the only one who can do this. God is the only one who can give us this mercy. 
In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7, in dealing with Moses, Moses had sinned. Moses asked to see God. This is what's happening here in Exodus 34. Hang on with me. We're almost done, I promise. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the God that David is appealing to, the God of steadfast love, the God of mercy, the God of of kindness, who shows kindness. And what is interesting is the Lord hears him. That's something that's encouraging for me. Because David is in the midst of his pride. David is in the midst of his sin. And the only thing he knows to do is go to the Lord. And what is the Lord's response? The Lord is to hear him. The Lord cares for him. The Lord shows him love and mercy and kindness. And listen, that is the same promise for us today. No matter what midst of sin you might be in right now, if you, if you are a child of God, the Father is saying, come to me. Why would, you not, why would you not come to me? I feel like it would be as if one of my children strayed and they were just hurting and they were struggling and I didn't know about it. And then finally I found out about it. I feel like my response would be, why didn't you come to me? You know I love you. You know I care about you. I would do everything in my power, everything that in my abilities to, to help you out. Why would you not come? Why would you run away from me? But yet don't we so often do that to our Lord? We sin and we, we find shame and we find guilt in that sin and we turn from him and we say, I've got to figure this out first and then I will go back to him. No, we need to be like David, who in his embarrassment, in his fall, in recognizing his puniness, he goes to to the Lord and he goes to him based off what? His covenantal love that he has promised to his people. Lord, I am yours and I am coming back to you and I know that you will accept me back. God never turns his children away, ever. And when David realizes that, when David understands that, is then when he can pen verse 11 and 12. David would say, you have turned away my mourning into dancing. You have put my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. We see such drastic changes taking place here. Why? Because God answered prayer. He shows David mercy. He shows David his kindness. God is true to his own character and David realizes that and David experiences that joy and it changes him from crying and being ashamed to dancing in the streets, praising his great God. As God's people, this needs to be a part of our DNA. And now listen, I'm preaching to myself more than you this morning. I am not a dancer I am not even a praiser, I would say. I am not exuberant. That's not my personality. It just is very hard for me to conjure that up. But if I'm going to be a child of God, then within my DNA needs to be 
the praise of him always. Quick to speak of his goodness. Quick to sing and to praise his love that he has for us. Wanting to do that in every occasion. And why? Why do I praise him? Why do I worship him? Because I know him. Because I know who he is. Because I know his word and the truths that lie in here. I know he's a God of grace. He's not a God who sits up there and hits me with the newspaper every time I do something wrong. That's not the God that he is. He's a God of grace and mercy who who loves me. But you've got to know that. And the only way to know that is to be in his word, is to have a relationship with him. But as we know that, the praise should bubble up. We know his mercy. We know his steadfastness. We know his love. We know how he is kind to his children. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are his and those promises are ours. And so no matter the things this world throws at us, God doesn't let us go. Though the world will not show you mercy, not very often, they will not show you mercy. God is quick to show us mercy. So we can go to him day after day, repenting of sin again and again. And never once does he look at us and say, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of you every day coming to me and saying I did wrong again. Stop doing wrong. We don't get that from our God. We get, I saved you in the midst of your sin. This sin doesn't surprise me. You're still mine. Oh yes, be holy. Yes, you can overcome this sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, strive on to do that. But listen, my child, I love you. I will never let you go. I think that makes him worthy to be praised. I hope you do too. Let's bow together. Let's pray. We'll have a time to respond to the word of God and to sing one more song to our Lord who is so kind to us, his children. Let's, let's pray together. God, forgive us for how we fall short in our worship and praise of you. God, how so often we can make it about ourselves about how we're feeling that day, about our schedule and what we have coming up. And God, I feel that all the time. And God, I seek forgiveness of that. Help me to be more apt to praise you, to be more apt to worship you, for that to be quick on my tongue, to share with other people. God, that I would have a life of of joy that people would see and that I could share with them where that joy comes from. It comes from the great gift of grace from my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, help us to be a church of praise. God, not a church that whines and complains all the time about the things of this world, although that's very easy to do. But God, to be a church that people know they, they love God down there. They might be crazy. We might not agree with what they're saying, but they're very true to that. God, I, I pray that we would be recognized for that. And so God, help us even now as we get ready to close this service through singing another song. God, first, help us to respond to your word how we should. Maybe there's someone here this morning who need to seek your face in prayer. They've been running. 
They've been ashamed. God, help them to be like David and to go to you and to cry out, Lord, be my helper. Because God, you're there for that. God, others maybe need to find that joy in their life, need to realize the truth of who Christ is. Help them to see that. But God, we want to end our service worshiping you and praising you. So help us to do that now the best we can in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.